Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. back for another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host. Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how we doing? Not too bad, Steve. How about yourself? Hey, it's uh, June. Uh, we're making, uh, finally got some decent weather here in the Midwest, so uh, things are looking up. Finally yeah, you getting just... outside, so... Yeah, you took a little time off and ran around the country a little bit. Yeah, recently, a little bit, a little bit. Took the kids, <laughs> went on a little vacation, had some fun. So uh, things were good, but yeah. glad to be back at it. So. Yeah, that's important, but <laughs> you come back to piles of work. <laughs> yeah, that was the case. <clears throat> and Chuck, uh, hey, this is episode 18, so a year and a half we've been doing these. And um, hopefully our listeners are getting a little bit out of them. I think we are. We're getting some good feedback. Uh, got some suggestions of things in the future, so pretty excited. Uh, things are going really good. Yeah, that's great. It's good to get the feedback. You know that way we know we're in the right direction. Um, without some critique, you do the same things, and right. Yeah, we don't want that. <clears throat> and we've got some good topics that we've got uh, outlined for upcoming episodes. So really excited uh, for the upcoming issues or upcoming episodes and think it'll be really, really good. So looking forward to it. So since it is the month of June, Chuck, we've got a little bit of, um, I'll call it a little bit of, I don't know, weird history for the automotive this uh, for June. And it was actually on June, uh, what was that? Second, 1956. And it's, it has to do with uh, somebody being arrested. So it'll, it'll make it a little interesting. <laughs> so on June 2nd, 1956, future stock car great Junior Johnson and his father were arrested for making moonshine whiskey. His father, a lifelong bootlegger, spent nearly 20 of his 63 years in prison as their house was frequently raided by revenue agents. The Johnson family experienced the largest alcohol raid in the United States history, seizing upwards of 400 gallons of moonshine from the house. That's a lot of shine. That's a lot of shine. <laughs> Junior spent one year in prison in Ohio for having an illegal still, although he was never caught in his many years of transporting bootleg liquor at high speeds. In 1955, Johnson began his career as a NASCAR driver. <laughs> interesting in his first four seat full season he won five races and finished sixth in the 1955 nascar grand national point standings so before uh, there's been so many changes in the name but the oh, grand yeah. national point standings in 1958 he won six races in 1959 he won five more NASCAR Grand National races, including a win from the pole position in the 1959 Hickory 250. I actually been to the Hickory track when I lived in North Carolina. By this time, he was regarded as one of the best short track racers in the sport. His first win at a super speedway came at the Daytona 500 in 1960. 
Johnson and his crew chief Ray Fox were practicing there. They're practicing for the race, trying to figure out how to increase their speed, which at was 22 miles per hour, 35 kilometers per hour, slower than the top cars in the race. During a test run, a faster car passed Johnson. He noticed that when he moved behind the faster car, his own speed would increase due to the the faster car slipstream. Johnson was able to stay close behind the faster car and, until at the final lap where he was able to use the slipstream effect to slingshot past the other car. By using this technique, Johnson went on to win the 1960 Daytona 500, despite the fact that his car was slower than the others in the field. So it sounds like Johnson kind of invented the drafting concept. Exactly. And then <laughs> our old buddy Earnhardt seemed to really perfect that. <laughs> exactly. He could, <laughs> he could see the air. <laughs> uh, Johnson's technique was quickly adopted by other drivers and his practice known as drafting has become a common tactic in the NASCAR races. In 1963, he had a two-lap lead in the World 600 at Charlotte. Two laps. Over 600 miles, a two-lap lead. Uh, before a spectator threw a bottle onto the track and caused Junior to crash. Must not have liked him very much. <laughs> <laughs> he suffered only minor injuries. He retired in 1966, and in his career, he claimed 50 victories as a driver, and 11 of those wins were at major speedway races. He retired as the winningest driver never to have a championship. Johnson was a master of dirt track racing. The two best drivers I've ever competed against on a dirt track are Junior Johnson and Dick Hutcherson, said two-time champ Ned Jarrett. Ned Jarrett. Well, in the 1970s and 1980s, he became NASCAR racing team owner. He sponsored such NASCAR champions as Cale Yarborough and Darrell Waltrip. He now produces a line of fried pork rinds and country ham. He is credited for his first use of the drafting technique in stock car racing. He is nicknamed the last American hero, and his autobiography is of the same. In May 2007, Johnson's team with Piedmont Distillers of Madison, North Carolina, came to introduce the company's second moonshine product called Midnight Moon Moonshine. So now it's legit. Yeah. <laughs> See, as long as they get the tax money, yeah, it's all exactly. good. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> so that was a little bit of history for June. I know it's kind of not engine really related, but it's uh, we, we thought it was kind of funny um, or fun to listen or talk about and, and let our listeners know about. So uh, Junior Johnson uh, has kind of gone from the rebel to the businessman, if you want to call it. You know, an, another little interesting tidbit I'm going to throw in there uh, about our industry. It's not directly related to engines, but um, a lot of folks know I used to work at Jasper Engines. And uh, Ray Bovel, who was uh, one of the founding members with Jasper Engine with Alfred and Ruxer and so forth. Well, when Ray actually played for the Philadelphia Eagles and the Green Bay Packers. And back in the day when he was playing, um, they allowed you know folks would stand along the line you know if hey, if you could get the tickets you could stand right up on the sideline so uh ray actually intercepted a ball and was running back and somebody was unhappy that he intercepted the ball so the, the guy standing along the sideline there tripped him <laughs> and uh 
So he wasn't able to run it back for a touchdown. So anyway, later in life, this guy, you know, he had done well for himself and Ray. And so, so he had a watch engraved and with, and sent it to him and, you know, with an apology and so forth for messing up his opportunity. But, you know, it's just pretty funny. So how cool. It's pretty interesting (laughs) folks in our industry. Oh yeah. Well, today's topic, Chuck, uh, we're actually going to introduce everybody to a tech team member, a new tech team member that you actually found. So if you want to talk about Fernando a little bit. Yeah, Fernando um, is a longtime friend. Uh, I met him in my previous life, um, technical sales. Uh, he was supporting the sales group uh, as an engineer. And he's educated me a lot about valve manufacturing and, and so forth over the years. Again, it's a, it was kind of nice to have an opportunity to work with him. He had reached out to me and was telling me about magazine articles and things of that nature that we do and just how he really enjoyed it. And of course we were looking for help with Spanish speaking world and, so we just kind of put some things together and, and here we stand today. We've got Fernando on the team. So a uh, big shot in the arm to all of us. Cool. Well, Fernando's actually here visiting us in the uh, Cary, Illinois office. So let's get started. Okay, Chuck, today with us we have a new addition to the team of AERA who started probably about a year ago, and that would be Mr. Fernando Curella. Hello, good morning. Thank you for inviting me here. First time in headquarters. Thank you very much. Yeah, good to have you up here with us. Yeah, Chuck actually got uh, found Fernando for us, and Chuck, why don't you tell us how you guys kind of met a little bit, and then we'll have Fernando kind of give a little background for him. So Fernando and I go back to the mid-90s. Uh, I worked at Jasper, and of course he worked for um, a valve manufacturer, uh, Basel in Argentina, and he'll talk more about that. But um, we instantly became friends and have kept in touch after Fernando retired and I moved on from Jasper and so forth. We still communicated. And he would, you know, give me information, you know, he let me know that he had read articles or seen presentations that we had done and so forth and uh you know we just got to the point where we were communicating and of course you know because you're uh we're saying hey we know we really need that spanish-speaking person and it just worked out we got you know the stars aligned and here we are (laughs) so fernando why don't you kind of introduce yourself to everybody tell us a little bit about yourself and um how you got in this industry well, uh, yeah, uh, I all my life I, I love engines, racing cars, bikes, whatever is uh, moving, and with an engine, of course. So I was, um, first of all, a kid of liking things that I can make with my hands, so I suppose I was going to be a mechanic, but then I, I began uh, studying in technical school in Argentina, so I was born in Argentina. 
So sorry for my English. It's uh, the best I can. <laughs> well, we wouldn't the, understand your Spanish. Or something. Yeah, so it's better for me to speak in English. But sorry, I apologize in advance. And uh, well, I finished um, uh, school with a technician and mechanical technician. And in those days, I began working for some racing go karts and things like that. So. Then I went to university, I got a mechanical engineering degree, and then uh, I began working for <clears throat> nothing related with the automotive industry, but I was always searching to work on the automotive industry because that's my, my heart driving me there. So finally I could got a job, a job in Ford in Argentina. Uh, Ford is a very big, big for, for South America, no? plant down there, uh, and I love to work there. Uh, and I was in charge of transmissions, and then I was moved to engine because I, I always try to work in engines. So finally, I was an engine design engineer. So I, I learned a lot in those days. The, um, you know, the industry was different. So we, we, can do, we could do things that nowadays um, are difficult because we had the, um, the liberty, how can I say, the freedom to, uh, to change designs that were coming from Detroit to adjust to our roads or to our fuels. So we had to work on the engines. And in addition to that, those days the, there, was, there was no globalization. So, we had to do everything in home, at home, in, in, in the plant. So we have foundry, we have casting, we have to work on machining. We machined cylinder blocks, cylinder head, connecting rod, crankshaft, camshaft, bearings, except, may I say, tappets, small, the, the small parts that, of course, they bought. I was involved in everything in machining. So I spent, I don't know, three quarters of my, of my time in, in the plant. I had, you know, the, my, my office and the, the drawing board, those days that were not computers, no... Uh, <laughs> You're not dating yourself here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so you had to do everything and testing and go to the dyno and testing on the track. And I love to do that. So, so uh, in my presentations, I always say that if you could work in what you love, is you're not working. So I never have a Monday. <laughs> All my days were, were Fridays or weekend. Of course, uh, we face problems. You have sometimes things gone wrong and you don't know why. But the best thing of if you love it is that you will fight to understand what's going on in talking with people that know much more than you because they, they've been in the industry for many years and they, they like to share. So I, I love those days. I worked 15 years in Ford. I left uh, just because um, it was a difficult time. You know, Argentina usually every 10 years have an economic crisis and we need to find different ways or jobs. Uh, that's not the, the reason I left, but I left because I have a very good opportunity to work in a program for racing. And that was 
the, the Basel valve factory in Argentina. We were very good um, uh, friends because they were suppliers. They were my suppliers in valves to Ford. And when, when I decided to quit Ford because it's okay, I, I got to the point that I need something else. You say, well, you know, we can make something together in racing because I want to develop a, a new program for the US and Europe only for racing valves. So, wow, that's my dream. <laughs> so, yeah, I jumped in and no, no, I, that was uh, 1990. And uh, the, from the first month I was here in the US. And that was my first time in the U.S., 40 years old. And that was the beginning of the company name with Motor Parts International. Yeah, exactly. That was the beginning of Motor Parts MPI. You know, um, that is, that was a division of, of uh, Motor Parts, which is the, the, the factory that makes high-performance racing bars there. So I was heavily involved in everything related to development, uh, testing, manufacturing, designing, of course. And also selling because I had to come, and that's the way I I could work with the best engine builders and companies here in the U.S. that I'm very proud to to have been friends for Vic Edelbrock, Richard Maskin, and people the the brother Thomas at Brodix. I traveled everywhere. Those days I lived more in the U.S. than than at home, <laughs> so I was coming back and forward. So. I always say thanks to my wife that she took care of the kids because I was here for a month, going to the races on the weekend, working on the shops, showing that uh, we knew something about valves and valve trains and we can do good things. So that's my story. Then I, all those years, it was 25 years coming to the US. Then I began going to Europe. I loved, you know, in Argentina, we are more European oriented in cars. Not there is Ford, GM, Dodge, everybody from the from North America there. But um, as the gasoline was always very expensive for us, we always pay four dollars a gallon. All my life, I remember that. Maybe a little more, a little, uh, but four dollars a gallon was expensive, and it still is to drive a V8. So V8s are not popular. <laughs> you have to be a rich guy to, to, to own a V8 and drive. Argentina is a long country, not wide, but uh, a long country. So you have to drive a lot as you do here. Mm -hmm. And when you stop at the gas station and you have to pay what uh, 30 V8 needs, I say, okay, no, I will go buy two V6 or four cylinders. So, there are many European cars, and the Fiat, Volkswagen, and Ford also, of course, and GM. But I, I tried to work on, on those cars in Europe also. And, well, the thing is that I, I could learn from people that has a lot of experience, had a lot, and wanted to share. That's the, the way I met you. Chuck, uh, I was in contact with uh, AERA for many years, even before <clears throat> we met to work together. And I love to, of course, my, my, I love to work on things that are new. 
especially, <clears throat> but also in failure analysis. I, I try to develop a way to understand and to, or, of course, training my, my people working there that we, we are not selling products, we are solving problems. And whenever a customer has a problem, it's our problem. And we need to find out, no matter if the, the, the broken part is not our part, but if we, if we can help him with our experience, that creates um, a special relationship with the customer and the supplier. You're not here to sell, and this is the price, and you get it or take it or no. No, I'm here to help. What, what do you need? Uh, sometimes I remember I went to shop or, or a customer that is, has a problem with a connecting rod. And I used to work for, with connecting rods in, at Ford. So I, say, I saw the connecting rod with a problem and said, what happened here? So he, he took a look and said, what do you know about connecting rod? Well, not too much, but I can help. What, do you, what did you tell me? And finally, we were talking about what happened with the connecting rod, and I was there to sell <laughs> a, a valve. So, yeah, you know that's the thing about the aftermarket. Oftentimes, <coughs> you know, and you know, I did my time with the with Mala Cleavite mm -hmm. and so forth, and 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 have that conversation often. You know, my buddy Dan Bakley there is like, you know, you have to make parts fit. But oftentimes in the aftermarket, you're looked at for a solution, exactly. like oversized OD bearings, mm -hmm. valve stems with oversized stems that you could, or reduce stem height, um, maybe different head diameter. So you're selling solutions. And as we were talking about that, the machine the other day, sometimes yep. the best, you know, the guy who is a salesman, um, his, his, his place, but as a technical person, if you answer questions, you sell a product. Exactly. The products or, the, you know, if that's the whole customer service side of it. But yeah, if you can answer questions, that product's going to sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, as I work on the other side of designing, and I, due to my, my uh, university, I know about materials. Of course, you have to, I, I'm still learning, I'm still studying. You never, you can never finish, of course. The, the changing in the engines along all these years has been awesome, has been awesome. So if you don't keep up with the, with the new design, with the new technologies, well, you can't work because engines are changing every day. Yeah, that old analogy about if you're sitting still, you're actually going backwards. Exactly, exactly. So my, and of course, uh, I, I work with uh, OEM levels, uh, helping the OEM customers that the, the Basel Group has here in the U.S. But my heart is in racing. So I, I, I follow the race. I had to be. Uh, I followed NASCAR. I, I had the opportunity to work with uh, big names like uh, Hendrick Motorsports uh, in, in their NASCARs, engines. In, the, in those days that they have, you know, the engine for qualifying, the engine for short tracks, the engine for the long track. So, uh, unbelievable days. Uh, same thing in, in Europe with Formula One. And now is everything is frozen and mass restricted because you have to have an engine for so many races. 
But those, those days they have engines for qualifying, they have engines for Friday, engines for Saturday, engines for racing, depending. I remember one time and I asked uh, Ferrari, uh, we were uh, discussing things with, with uh, valves, and I asked, him, I asked them which uh, the next race was coming in, this, in the same week I was there. In, in Italy, no. So I asked, well, what, what what do you have new for this race? And the engineers looked at me and say, <laughs> say, why are you laughing? You know what? For every race, we have three or four different new engines. What do you mean? Well, we have one engine. If, if on Friday we are okay, we don't put we don't. Uh, put anything else. That's okay. If on Friday we feel that we need something more power, then we take the second level that is not so well proved and tested and the one that we were using. And if finally we found that we need really to have a better engine because we are at the end of the grid or we are fourth, we put, you know, we say all the meat on the barbecue, <laughs> as we say in Argentina, well, put all the meat in barbecue. So I say, wow, uh, but you have these kind of engines for Friday, different levels for Friday, different levels for Saturday, different levels for Sunday. Yes, that's right. Oh my gosh, <laughs> how much money is there? So when you think about a component like like a valve or something, a valve spring or tap, something that is so small in taking into account a racing engine, you feel scary. You say, wow, my component or the component we make, we were almost thousand people at the factory and, and that, not at the racing factory, but maybe we were 300 people, but everybody was working for one part that is going to one engine mm -hmm. that is racing and getting as an NASCAR uh, TV, media, people, radio, uh, fans. And if a problem with a part that is only a small part of this huge effort, wow, it, it's a failure that I will never forget. So I, I work hard always to get the best we can to to be in touch with the latest uh, developments and be, being down there in Argentina in South America is not easy to keep up with the latest things you you have here in the US or you have in Europe new materials I remember those days in Formula One that they you were manufacturing a bunch of valves maybe 200 for the well, for an order that some of the companies asked, we have two contracts in, in Formula One in different uh, different years with different uh, manufacturers. And suddenly they call you and they say, stop, we found a new design that gave, gave us two horsepower more. Stop everything. Put your, your, your parts in the trash and then we will send you a new print. So, wow. How can they do that? So, and we're talking about titanium valves, uh, valves that require to, to be controlled 
one by one. I remember we sent the valve for Formula One with a folder. Those days were a folder, then was a scan with a disc, a CD, with all the information of measurements, uh, um, metallurgical, hardness, coating, one valve per valve with a number. So I know that is usual in that level, but it takes uh, a big effort to keep up. And the same thing when they call you and say, you know, we found that there is a new material, MMC material, that is being tested in, I don't know, Russia. Why don't you go there and find what is it? Because I like, we like to test it. So, wow, <laughs> how can we do that? So, finally, we decided that Formula One was too high to keep up with the new. Then they, they went <coughs> the other way around. So, they began frozen uh, they frozen designs and they they put new regulations to stop this race of ever increasing and because the cost of the engines was unbelievable high the failures we were talking the other day about the ceramic components ceramic valves and they had breakages a bomb as a blowout engine so those things put the competition back to a level that is affordable also for more, more suppliers around the world. And same right, thing. Right, right. You know, that's the tough part you think about it because how do you advance if you don't challenge everything? But when it gets to a point where only one or two people could be out there because mm -hmm. the other folks. So, I mean. I understand both sides of it, yeah. and we really, we really need to push the the limit. You know, be on the bleeding edge sometimes to find out where we can go with that. But again, it doesn't make sense to make it where only one team can be out there. That's no fun. Competition, exactly, is what makes it fun, right? Yeah, yeah, and that balance is difficult because nobody wants to be second. <laughs> you know, racing is uh, Ayrton Senna said it's number one and nothing else so if I, I, I'm there to, to win second is the first of the losers right <laughs> so yeah. it, it's, it's very <clears throat> and I respect all the engine builders and engine rebuilders so much because finally we are you know engineers suppliers but they have the responsibility to win. A, an engine builder in racing has a, a career and a name if he engines win. If not, second is nothing. And that is so tough. That is so tough. My best engine builders, friends for life, I have two or three in Argentina that for many, many years, and. Uh, we, we have been working together, uh, assembling engine in the research and development. And I say, well, it's hard to work this in, this in this level when you are professional because there are the sponsorship are pressure, uh, the, the drivers are pressure, have pressure on them because they have to win. And, uh, and 
finally everybody says, well, I need a better engine. Of course, I'm a racer also. I, I raced vintage car racing. I began all when I, I stopped racing go-karts for many, many years. So I had to go to the university to work. So there was no time and no money for, for <laughs> racing. But after a lot of years, I decided that I can at least race vintage car racing. And that's what I still do some, sometimes. But I used more often uh, years ago. Uh, I used to race more often. And um, it's the same. If, uh, if we are amateurs, but you're there to win. So you look for your best engine, you look for, for your best car. Um, in, in the industry, the engine builders have a, a big part because it's easy to race when you have one of the best engines. You can have a, a middle uh, um, power engine in, in the grid that or, or you are an outstanding driver or you are not going to win. So the, to work in the engine and to pay attention to this minimum parts, I always say that in the engine, everything has to do with everything. So don't look, you have a failure. We also... We, we That's a great point that, uh, and we talked about that in some other podcasts, that some people will, you know, especially mechanical engineers, well, they'll get focused on, you know, because you've got your, like your METs that mm -hmm. are maybe more broad-based and stuff. But sometimes, you know, you go get a mechanical engineer that's so focused on the features and details of one part, but they don't think about the part that it interrelates with. And like we were talking about on FMEA, mm -hmm. it's only as good as the, the outputs are only as good as the inputs. If I don't say, look for this, I'm not going to get an output on it. That might be the part that means failure. So the interrelationship between the components is is super critical. Is is critical? I always ask the the engine builders when they disassemble, uh, you know, clean table uh, uh, boxes where you put even a lock is important. Take a look. Don't don't mix the locks in the valve if you are going to reuse the the parts and you have to look everything because the failure could not be in the part you saw it's easy to say oh i have a broken valve well why you have to begin maybe it's a, an oil problem overheating problem so many variables i'm not saying that are, the parts are perfect sometimes there is a problem in the part but it's important to take a look around and to understand what's what happened and of course, it's the only way to solve for the next race. I don't want to have the same problem. And sometimes it happens because, or in the case of the Valtrain, Valtrain is one of the most, um, how can I say, um, challenging parts in the engine because you have dynamic forces, acceleration, well, all these things that over revving, uh, camshaft with too aggressive yeah, the uh, profiles, thermal, thermal loads, thermal you know, loads. Like, like valve springs. You know, this, if you look at the bottom end, the crank, the rod, and the piston are tethered together. And the valve spring mm -hmm. doesn't, I mean, the, it can kind of 
we, we float valves yes. and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So it's, it's a different dynamic. Um, so the bottom end's kind of all tied together, and the valve training has more opportunity to get chaotic. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about the, the high RPM stuff. I think, you know, we all struggle a little bit to rationalize what's going on in the engine and how quickly it's happening. So like Formula One, 12,000 RPMs, yep. the valve's opening and closing 100 times a second. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the exhaust valve has to go from 400 degrees Fahrenheit to about 1,000 degrees <coughs> Fahrenheit and down to 400 mm-hmm. degrees 100 times in a second. How does that happen? Yeah. You're just like, these are things that you can't get through your mind. You get your mind. Okay. You, the math tells you it does. But in your mind, how can that happen in a second? <laughs> yeah, I always say that exactly. Say, when you look at the parts and you are disassembled, don't think that this is the same way they were when they were running in the engine. They were a thousand degrees, they were going up and down a hundred times per second or 200 depending on the, the RPMs. So think about what happened in the environment that these components were working. Not now that we are, you know, at room temperature, everything's fine. No, no, no. The, the, the components, of course, all the alternative parts, the pistons, rods, and, and in the valve train, as you said, valve springs, everything is connected. And we tried to understand how they work. And nowadays, there are so many uh, ways to learn. Uh, I'm still learning. I, I, you have good papers in in, in internet, uh, books in internet, uh, good good people that uh, podcasts that we have in ARA uh, to help people uh, understanding things that years ago when we didn't have all those possibilities. The only way to, of course, books. Um, I have hundreds of books that I still read and trying to find. But there are things that are never shown in a book, and that's experience. Mm-hmm. And the experience will tell you somebody that knows the problem or know uh, his expertise and share. And that's what I like to do. And at my age now, I'm retired but still working, uh, trying to enjoy life part time and working on what I love. Um, but you need to share what you knew because that way this this world of the internal combustion engine that we love will keep up uh, running i say you know i always try to finish my era article saying well the best is yet to come be part of that because that's what i feel Mm -hmm. uh we know there is a big you know, argument in electric, uh, electricity for the future, can be, but we still have a lot to do with internal combustion engines. There is a lot of alternative fuels that we need to work to investigate, on, yeah. to investigate. Uh, I always say, uh, if we compare the combustion, internal combustion engine industry with other industries, you'll see that in a hundred years how much we improved uh, emissions and power 
when you compare maybe not a hundred, maybe only fifty years ago. Well, if you think on another, I don't know, maybe a refrigerator, if the same um, improvement of the internal combustion engine would have been applied to a refrigerator, I don't know, we can refrigerate a whole house with a matchbox size refrigerator today <laughs> in, in performance. In, in, mm-hmm. So the, sometimes we, we, we don't even realize how much we improved the internal combustion engine and how much still need to be improved because all, all the world is working. We've been working since the 70s in reducing emissions and the engines today are unbelievable. Right. So, you know, to, on that point, um, Randy Neal, who owns CWT, mm-hmm. he had done a presentation at the Production Engine Rebuilder Conference when we were in Reno a few years ago. And he says, hey, who builds performance engines here? And nobody put their hands up because they're production engine rebuilders. He's like, well, everybody should raise your hand because you all do. Mm-hmm. And because the performance level of an engine built today, mm-hmm. you know, turbocharged, multi-turbos, VGT, all of those things that are happening. And then, you know, I use the analogy of the 2.7 EcoBoost compared to a 460 Ford. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the numbers, torque and horsepower, that 2.7, 165 cubic inch engine, is making more power and torque than the 460. Um, what things did they do to make it capable of doing that? Like the compacted graphite block. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing's built really well. Steel crankshaft, twin turbos, and blah, blah, blah. But for you to get into that sector, you got to realize that, okay, that some of the old rules have to go out the window on mm-hmm. what on tolerances. You know, we got to really, really pay attention to what we do because... This is like building a performance engine, yep. but it's super sensitive to being built like a performance engine with camshaft phasers and things like You can't have the big oil clearances and things of that nature. So, um, you know, although we've really made quantum leaps in some areas um, moving forward, we have to stay there. It doesn't mean that, oh, we got there so we can back off a little bit or those things just won't work, you know camshaft phasers are going to leak oil and they're not going to perform. Um, Lashage up, you know, cam bore clearances. There's a ton of oil that goes to the top end. And I think sometimes we forget that. You know, like stuff that worked with a pushrod engine, but now I have four camshafts up top and I have a lot of oil flow. So um, it's really, really important to make sure that, you know, we make clearance we pay attention to clearances and and the right oils and temperatures and so forth. So they they make us be better performers too. You know, the engine performance mm-hmm. is better, but we as machinists and engine builders, yeah. we have to perform better too. So it brings the competition level forward in both arenas. And, and in addition, we today, we are working in those engines that years ago were only for racing and we're getting this kind of performance for the streets, but a racing engine you expect to 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 to, to work at least one race. Hmm? But when you work for the street, 
nobody's working to <laughs> working for one day. <laughs> so you are working for a lot of thousand miles. So that put another that that thing put another um, pressure on the engine rebuilder because you are now pushed to give the quality of the OEM in a rebuilding engine that is going to have a warranty. So, and you are working yeah. 20 or 30 years ago in a totally different engine with tolerances much tighter, with a lot of materials that are difficult to cut, difficult to machine. So uh, the, the, the industry has pushed all this engine rebuilding activity worldwide, a lot. Attention to detail. You know, speaking of attention to detail, you told us a story one time about the the detail of mm-hmm. translating, you know, specifications. Mm-hmm. Re- you remember the story yeah. about comparing it to like a house or something and translating metric. Ah, yeah. Can you can you give us that story? Um, when I translated by um, uh, mentally, <laughs> right, uh, right. Well, you know, in Argentina, we use the metric system. So we think in millimeters. As you here in the U.S. and other countries, you think in inches. And acres, we think in millimeters, meters. So whenever I see uh, a number in inches, 0.004, I need to translate in my mind, or, or a calculator is, if it's <laughs> more complicated, to millimeters to, rea- to to know, well, how big is this? How small? What are we talking about? And in the engine, you, we know that a thousand of an inch is or it's too big. So, but a thousand of a millimeter is too small. So, you, I don't have it always in my mind. Uh, one time I was um, in a Formula One, yeah, well known, the best Formula One engine uh, ever. Um, making engines in the 60s, the famous V8 that won so many races and always there trying to introduce ourselves and you know coming from Argentina and being in the center of the world and the, and the, on those days was the number one engine builder in Europe say where are you coming from and what do you know from making balls so we have a meeting I was like uh, in a in, in the in the university being asked questions to approve my subject and there are a lot of engineers and uh, I remember was the quality manager there so he has okay he will ask him questions about tolerances on, on valves or and he asked me something just like, said, okay, how much you put on the concentricity of the seat? And I, th- I thought in millimeters and I translated to inches and I gave him an answer. And suddenly I saw that nobody answered was freezing. My answer freezed everybody. Nobody said anything. And this guy with a with a British perfect, I love British, <laughs> love British accent. He said, sir, we build up racing engines here, not houses. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, did I, what did I say? 
you mentioned so many Taos. I didn't know what a Tao was <laughs> in those days, <laughs> early 90s, first times over there in Europe or here in the US. What a Tao is? Well, thousand of an inch. And what did I say? This. Well, do you have a calculator there? Okay. Oh, sorry. I, I, I explained it 10 times. <laughs> I made, mentally, I made, I, I made a mistake. So, well, oh, they laughed and you know, said, ah, okay, okay. But when, when he answered, we build up racing engines, not houses. <laughs> wow, what did I say? And that opened me um, the, the doors for people and companies that uh, then we can began, we, we could begin working with them at all levels of the racing in, the, in, the, in Europe, in, in winning championships. And that's the, the way we could go to Formula One, um, working with them, prepare in the in those days that, as I said, was very difficult because they're constantly changing the engines. Now, uh, is it, frozen the design, so you can you you know that you make a development and you can have two or three years for the same design is frozen. Nothing will be changed if it's everything okay. Uh, now the the new and on those days they were going up in in RPMs. That's they they finally reached before two thousand and six. They reached uh, the twenty thousand RPMs. So that's something unbelievable. That uh, of course. No, oh, absolutely. I remember watching onboard telemetry, you yeah. know, qualifying mm -hmm. and so forth, and you would see them. Maybe even like the Ferraris were eclipsing twenty thousand RPMs, and and you think about that the little die grinders, you know, the air driven die grinder that you would use in your shop to uh, with the wire wheels, and those will do twenty five, twenty six thousand RPM, and, and that's on a common shaft <laughs> with vein, you know, no pistons, no, no reciprocating mass. Yeah, it's crazy. Well. The strokes were so so small. We need to think that uh, if you have a bigger stroke, twenty thousand is impossible. But the stroke is so small that they could reach that RPMs. But the forces involved, uh, we were working with uh, you know, and still today, uh, titanium valves and special valve seats and special valve guides and special materials. So I had to go deep to get deep in that uh, level. To, to keep up with the, with the competition and to, with the product that we had. So whenever I came to the U.S., I, I saw a very accelerated uh, changing change in NASCAR, for instance. NASCAR in the early 90s was what was a kind of engines. And then uh, what they got up today, it's unbelievable. Because they are pusher the engines. That's something that uh, we have to take in consideration. It's totally different. The, the valve train with an overhead camshaft is more rigid, so you can have easily more, more RPMs. Uh, you don't have so huge uh, if, uh, loads, efforts on, the, on your push rods. I remember coming here uh, to uh, for a broad, I, I was also engaged with some journalists uh, in, in the automotive, in the racing, 
And they say, hey, are you going to travel to India? Yeah, I could be there. Well, it's, I was, it was 1994, and the, the, the Indy car racing was coming. And they say, well, why don't you go there and, and we, we will show the, the, um, the race by, on TV. And you can make your technical comments as a commentator there. Yeah, I'll be there, so I can do that. So <clears throat> I, I, before coming, I had to, to, to study what, what would be the engines because I, I was in touch with the industry, but for that race, what's new? And for that race, the Mercedes-Benz uh, came with a new design, with a new engine to take, because uh, the regulations allowed uh, if you can, you can only, you can make a special engine, not uh, a whole bunch of engines. If, uh, and if you work with a push rod engine, you have an advantages over the overhead camshaft competition. And the, the people there at Mercedes-Benz, they realized, they study the regulations and realized that they could make an engine that could have at least a hundred horsepower more. And that was not really Mercedes-Benz, but because it was Ilmor, the, the British company, that is that they're still making the Mercedes-Benz engine. Now it's part of Mercedes-Benz, but they, they realized that they made with uh, a new engine, with such a short push rod, it's an unbelievable engine, and they won that race. So I, when I saw the design, say, they put the camshaft so up mm -hmm. in the block that the push rod is so short that they had the advantages of the push rod engine in the regulations, but they could have more horsepower because they have the possibility of doing that at high RPMs because the push rod is so short. No bending, no flexing. So things like that always Sometimes we, we lose the, 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 the idea of, okay, what kind of engine? NASCAR is push rod engines. So that's something that put a lot of load and effort and dynamic forces on the valve train that we don't have in an overhead camshaft. So looking at the race now in a oval track that they race in 500 miles at more than 9,000 RPMs in a push of the engine is a miracle. It's a miracle. For me, I, I emotion. Oh, <laughs> it's it's yeah, touched by emotions. So how can you do that? It's unbelievable how much technology and engine design they put to get what we have now in NASCAR for, for, for racing engines. There are not, not too many broken engines. They have to last several races uh, it's not an engine for today and a different one for tomorrow you have to win and the engine have to last for several races at that rpm when i i one of the articles i wrote i told that we always measure the alternative part in cycles how many cycles we this part because you can measure in hours or miles but the best, when you're testing, you are thinking about, okay, how many cycles, when it's alternative, you need. Well, uh, fatigue lives, 
uh, in Eval are expected to be over 10,000, uh, 10 million cycles, but uh, in you can have two million cycles in a race track in a 500 miles. So sometimes if you design is so close to the fatigue limit, you can have a, a, after the race the fatigue limit there, maybe uh, half an hour more and the valve is gone for fatigue. So there are so many things that you need to take into account when there are long races than short races. There are a lot of things um, nowadays and more due to the, also the fuels. That's also an important thing that we take in consideration when we are talking in the combustion chamber because all these aggressive fuels, well, you need to know what is the reaction that the valve material or the coating or the combustion chamber will create. Sometimes uh, you can try a new coating, but it doesn't work with this kind of fuels. Uh, they are too aggressive and uh, the combustion chamber temperatures are too high. Well, we're talking about turbo. Wow. You need, well, we, we have special alloys like Inconel, basically 70% nickel content, because you need this valve to withstand higher temperatures for a long time. So they must keep their strength at levels that your regular steel would not, or stainless steel would not. Um, the way of failure is different. We talked about this before. Uh, a steel valve work differently in failure than titanium valve. Titanium valve usually broke, boom, break, yeah, breaks. Uh, it doesn't show you that it's going, something is going to happen or stretching is you usually stretch a valve. Well, that's stainless steel. But when you go to titanium, titanium will not stretch and say, okay, I, I'm losing clearance. So what's going on here? Or the seat is wearing or the valve is stretching. No, no, you will not find that. But the valve, boom, suddenly. <clears throat> well, the thermodyn you know, thermal dynamics, you, you take a look at the same, like when you heat treat a part, the same process of mm -hmm. heat treating as the as you cycle the valve, it kind of like that old story about the same water that hot water that softens the potato hardens it's, the egg. Exactly. And that's you know <laughs> one of the things I think that we forget when we want to reclaim valves is that we're we're changing the molecular structure during duty cycling, and then you can have the valves that just fail. Well. Why? Yeah. Because we don't have the ability to measure that well. And like you said, the valve doesn't stretch. It doesn't give you an idea. So I think that's like the titanium. The people in the know usually say, oh, we're going to run it for this period of time. Yeah, exactly. Then quit. Exactly. Exactly. And also, well, you talk about reclaiming valves. That some, I always tell that sometimes, I know that it's the usual, it's usual in the industry to reclaim valves, but... The problem mainly with the exhaust valves is that you don't know what was what happened in his in the in the valve life before. Could be an overheating, could be a an overrevving, something that just looking at the valve and 
uh, polishing and making the, the, the seed again will not show what happened inside the material. I, I wrote that in, the, in one of the last articles for valves, that in fact the temperature, the, the exhaust temperatures, are the same temperatures that in manufacturing we put to the exhaust, the stainless steel exhaust valve for aging because it's the only way to harden stainless steel in a process that is called aging. But the same process goes inside the engine. So if the valve has been working at high temperatures for too long, it's better, even if, if it's good and you see that there's no scratches and no porosity or nothing, maybe you if it's a, if you have a doubt, it's better to change it and put a new one not because dimensionally, as I said, or, or you see cracks. Of course, you will not put a cracked valve, uh, but the structure of the material is different. It's more fragile at the end of uh, several um, hundred miles, thousand hundred miles working in the engine. And you don't realize, because the valve outside is the same. And there are other components that have the same. So sometimes I recommend, so maybe I know that when you are rebuilding, you try to reduce, you are competing and you have to reduce your, your cost in spare parts, but sometimes uh, it's a warranty. You, 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 you need to ask as much as you can, but sometimes you never know where this cylinder head, did, what, where it came from, what would it happen before. So, if possible, especially the exhaust valves, put new ones, mm. if, if you can. Yeah, you know, we, we take a lot of calls about blown head gaskets, heads warp this much. That's probably some good advice. Hey, this head's warped 10 thousands, can I mill that much? But I think we gotta think deeper, okay, what did it hurt on the exhaust valves? And, and I caution folks about the piston rings too, because we got the rings so close to the top of the piston, mm. How many iron rings are there today? Yeah. Zero. Zero. Because, you know, everything's turbocharged, so they're all heat-treated steel rings that are very close to that temperature zone. So we, and you do get some feedback. I, I took a call recently where a guy was, this thing is consuming tons of oil now after we resurfaced the head. And, you know, if it, if it overheated, it could have hurt the rings, but, you know, it's just, again, that, the chain of events, the interrelationship of all the parts and and the situation, I believe. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, well thanks say a lot Steve. for the well, <laughs> I don't know, I got a bunch of questions, but we got, we're, we're kind of over the time limit here. So we'll probably have to have you back on again at some other point, but it was uh, very interesting to uh, kind of hear your background and, and your work in the automotive industry it's it's very interesting like i said we i know chuck and i have a bunch more questions we could ask but due to time uh we, you know we gotta probably cut it short here yeah, so. yeah i know well I, I thank you very much thank you so much for for being now part of aera to help our engine rebuilder industry worldwide to to keep growing 
Yeah, and I think you had mentioned, you know, you wrote some articles for our magazine, and, and they're great articles, and you, you know, if you, you got the magazine, please read those articles, because he does a great job of explaining valves and, and all kinds of things. I mean, I, I learned a lot from those articles that Fernando wrote uh, for the magazine, so please read those. Um, I think you're coming to PRI this year. You're going to be at PRI, so everybody can come by the booth in December, and we'll, we'll, uh, Welcome you to some nice weather in December. <laughs> yes, in the I Midwest. know. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Well, I never missed the PRI for 25 years, so it's only the pandemic stopped me going there. <laughs> so I love to be there. That's the place to be once a year. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate it. discussion with Fernando and learned a lot about him um, so kind of glad to have him on our team and he's helped our Spanish speaking guys out a lot with membership tech questions and so on but it is it's very good to learn a little bit about Fernando absolutely and the fact that he's just it's not that he's just an engineer and that's the part that he kind of focused on he loves this stuff he's a yeah. racer he and he he's such a people person you know Karen <laughs> She loves him to help out with her part of the tech, I mean, dealing with the uh, members and so forth. So it's great. It is. And he's so down to earth. I mean, he, he'll talk to anybody and doesn't, he doesn't take it to that highest level. Like you say, he's an engineer, you know, so he doesn't take it to that high level and try to talk over you. He explains it very well. And like you said, he's very easy to talk to. Yeah. Good friend to be on the team. Well, Chuck, a couple of things we need to talk about is what are we going to talk about in our next episode? What are we going to talk about, Steve? Um, you know, it's something that comes up all the time in reference to machining blocks and heads and so forth. Uh, we have a lot of discussion about minimum specs and so forth, but calculating compression ratios is something that we all really, really should do more of, especially when we have all the parts to, to get the measurements. So we're going to discuss what impact compression ratio has, how to, how to calculate it, what tools you need. And again, impact, um, on the end product is, can be a real challenge today. If you take a look at the compression ratio you're starting with you know the days of seven and a half to one engines are, are long gone so uh, if you're if you got a seven and a half to one engine you can mill stuff a bunch but if you start out at ten and a half you got to watch what's going on so exactly. anyway we'll discuss that pretty in depth <clears throat> and it works out pretty good because we're actually giving away to anybody that joins membership or renews their membership a uh cc kit for cylinder heads so kind of ties into that and it'll be good yeah so that came from comp cams i believe it did or yeah yeah comp yeah. edelbrock group they they yeah, donated that so it's part of the uh quarterly raffle deal yeah that'll be good uh hopefully we can enlighten some people and educate them a little bit on the compression ratio where bigger is not always better <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> Something else we got going on, July 22nd, is the Wagler 
uh, competition products, uh, I believe is what it's called, regional conference. And that'll be held in uh, Lyons, Indiana, Chuck? That's correct. Yeah, so Waggler Competition Products actually owns Waggler Motorsports Park, and uh, they're going to host the event. So, of course, we're going to do our Tech and Skills Regional, where we we share some tech and uh, from the skills of others. <laughs> <laughs> and we're hoping to have some you know, good activities around that. Of course, there's going to be some drag racing that night, um, the qualifying test and tune. And then the following day, the Southeast Gasters Association, Sega, is going to be drag racing. So Yeah, so we kind of tied it in together to work with those guys to do that uh, with that Southeast Gasters Association, which is you guys haven't seen them it's it's pretty neat to see uh, i haven't seen them i know chuck's seen them a couple times but i'm looking forward to it to see those guys as a drag racer myself happened long before my time uh but it'll be kind of neat to see those guys and and see how those cars run yeah it's a real throwback of course they you know they have the straight axles and the fronts are lifted and they're all four-speed cars so it's some gear banging heads up drag racing uh you know they have the lineup girls and everything it's it's a it's entertaining event seems like they uh they pull a pretty good crowd everywhere they go so we're looking forward to that and that is friday july 22nd i don't think we mentioned that part of it but <clears throat> friday july 22nd will be that conference down at waggler's uh motorsports park in Lyons, indiana so be on the lookout for that information on our website or eblast or give us a call if you got any questions or would like to attend You can also subscribe to the Engine Professional Podcast on your favorite podcast listening platforms or listen online at podcast.engineprofessional.com. And if you have any tips, suggestions, questions, comments, and you'd like to email Chuck and I, please email us at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, that brings us to a close of another episode. So, yeah, looking forward to the next episode there where we're going to talk a little bit about compression ratio, fill you guys in. So until that time, um, I'd like to wish everybody a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there as this will be June. And then we may get it done before July 4th, but if we don't, everybody have a safe and happy July 4th holiday.